Hi, this is Pastor Robert Blanchard from Lansing First United Methodist Church here in Lansing, Michigan. I just want to take a moment to thank you for checking out our sermon podcast. And if you want to learn more about what we do here at Lansing First, or you want to support us in our mission of going deep, reaching out, and loving Lansing, you can do so online at lansingfirst.org. Thanks. Our third scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken, the gospel of the Lord. Praise you, Lord Jesus Christ. Author of life, we thank you for your word, and we ask that your spirit would be upon us this morning to transform us in heart and mind and soul. Amen. The story of Jesus cleansing the temple is a fascinating one. In the Synoptic Gospels, it occurs right near the end of the narratives, in the final week before Jesus is crucified. But the author of the Gospel of John moves this event right near the beginning of the story. Now, we could argue about whether Jesus actually did this twice, but what seems more likely is that the author of John wants to emphasize this event as being thematic for the whole gospel story. The gospel of John is a more mystical text than the other gospels, and so it's often more concerned about symbols and thematic coherence than with historical accuracy. So that begs the question, what is it about this story that makes it so important to the understanding of the gospel that John places it front and center. Well, obviously, this is a story about the resurrection. We are told in this version of the story that if the temple is destroyed, then Jesus will build it back up in three days. 
The onlookers are amazed by this claim and protest that there is no way for this to be possible since the current temple had been under construction for 46 years and still wasn't finished. Jesus, however, is talking about resurrecting the temple with his body. And we know that the bodily resurrection of Christ was more than just the resurrection of his own body, but also the formation of the church as the spiritual body of Christ for the world. So when Jesus cleanses the temple and promises to rebuild it, we should understand that he's also setting the example for what the church ought to look like. So let's look at what Jesus actually does in this story. He goes up to the temple and finds people selling cattle, sheep, and doves. This may sound a little odd to us, but we have to remember that people were expected to provide burnt offerings at the temple. When we heard the story about the infant Jesus being presented at the temple, we heard how Mary and Joseph made the offering permitted to those who couldn't afford more, two doves. In the temple, he also finds money changers seated at their tables. Again, an idea that on its face might sound bizarre to us. But the temple was the center of the ancient Judean religious world. Especially at a time like Passover, there would have been worshipers from around the ancient Near East traveling to the temple to observe the holy festival. Just think of the list of nations that are present at the day of Pentecost. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, and Rome. This was a cosmopolitan place and money changers would have been necessary for the temple economy to function. Well, then why the anger? Why does Jesus do what he does next? In Jesus, we see an angrier, more direct echo of the prophet Jeremiah who mounted the temple steps to decry the idolatry that was occurring outside the temple and the false piety happening inside the temple. But now, Jesus, seeing that worldly corruption, has invaded even the house of worship, And so the acts of offering that were meant to bring people closer to their relationship with God instead had been reduced to mere commercialism. The ability to provide the good offerings became a privilege of the wealthy, and a whole class of merchants had figured out how to make money off of people's best intentions to do what is right in the eyes of God. And so Jesus loses it. He taps into all the rage and resentment that must have existed over this predatory, exploitative principality masquerading as religion. And let's not mince words about what happens. Jesus starts a riot. He flips tables. He dumps out the bags of ill-gotten gains on the ground. And he makes a whip and drives all the cattle out of the temple. 
Jesus sees the injustice of the system and he destroys property. He loots the money changers. He flat out causes trouble to draw attention to the corruption of the system. Now, as someone who takes seriously Jesus' teachings on nonviolence, this is a tricky scene to reconcile with the same Messiah who warns that violence leads to death. One thing that helps bridge this gap is if we notice that Jesus doesn't use violence against the people. He uses the whip to drive the livestock out, and then, from what we can see in the text, everyone else hangs around to ask just exactly he thinks he's doing. The other thing that I will say is that the only way it seems possible for these things to be coherent is if Jesus values the lives of the poor and the oppressed more than things. Things can be fixed or replaced. Tables can be put back upright. Windows can be fixed. Spray paint can be rubbed clean. The lives of the poor can't be replaced. Someone who dies of hunger or from a treatable illness or due to violence is a loss that can't be made right after the fact. Jesus was outraged that the worship of God had been turned into the idolatry of money and right ritual, not simply because it detracts from the worship of God, but because it detracts from the love of neighbor. Idolatry and injustice are inseparable from one another. They feed off of each other. Where there is idolatry, there is injustice. And where there is injustice, there is idolatry. But what does this have to do with the church as the body of Christ? Sure, we can all think of those churches that are essentially commercial enterprises that brand themselves with the cross, but that's not most of our churches. So we clearly must not be in the same situation as those merchants and money changers, right? I mean, if you take a look at our budget, we are clearly not getting rich off of this. To be frank, we've not even broken even in quite a while. But there are many kinds of idolatry, and there is a different kind of thing at work in a lot of our churches. I can't even tell you the number of times I have heard what a shame it is that young people don't come to church anymore. I've even had conversations with people out in public who find out that I'm a pastor, and the first thing that they want to talk about is how we get young people back in the church. But as someone who is still young-ish, I can tell you that when a lot of my peers, friends, and families and family look at the institutional church, they're looking at money changers as far as they're concerned. Like I said, it takes a different form, but the result is the same. They look at the church and they see a group of people who are interested in maintaining museums of what used to be, but have no interest in the lives of people outside the sanctuary. And here's the kicker. 
is not that they don't know Jesus or that they don't know what the gospel says. They do know Jesus, and they do know what the gospel says, and they took it seriously. But then they looked at the church and saw an institution that didn't seem to take it as seriously as they did. There was a song released last year called A Hymn to the 81%. If you haven't heard it, I strongly encourage you to look it up. Wait till worship is over, and then you can go look it up. It's a lament by Daniel Dietrich, who grew up in southwest Michigan and is a worship leader at a church in South Bend. He's lamenting the fact that the church, and particularly the modern evangelical movement, don't reflect the values that they taught him growing up. I want to share with you the beginning of this song. He sings, I grew up in your churches, Sunday morning, evening service, knelt in tears at the foot of the rugged cross. You taught me every life is sacred, feed the hungry, clothe the naked. I learned from you the highest law is love. And I believed you when you said that I should trust the words in red to guide my steps through a wicked world. I assumed you'd do the same. So imagine my dismay when I watched you lead the sheep to the wolves. You said to love the lost so I'm loving you now. You said, speak the truth. I'm calling you out. Why don't you live the words you put in my mouth? May love overcome and justice roll down. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if you have already heard this song, because it went viral when it was released. It spoke to the pain and the anguish that so many people feel about the church. The accounts of these feelings are out there if you look for them. There are a number of high-profile people who've left the church, and even more everyday folks who couldn't take the silence when it came to questions of justice. I remember last year as protests unfolded across the nation, there was an article from one young activist who essentially said that in the communities that formed in the streets, they found the church that they were taught to believe in, but that they had never experienced inside the church. This young person found a community of care and compassion and mutual support that was doing the work of justice, while many of our institutional churches were at best silent on what was unfolding and at worst engaged in sanctimonious finger-wagging. Like I said, there are plenty of accounts out there, but I want to share with you some of the accounts that I have heard or witnessed firsthand from family and friends. 
I have one friend who grew up in the Methodist church, the child of a pastor, as Methodist as a Methodist can be. The problem in the eyes of the church is that she's also a lesbian in a loving marriage. I've watched the spiritual torture that she has endured as someone who felt a call to ministry in a church that did not accept her fully as a beloved child of God. I watched as she tried to push against the system from the inside until she couldn't anymore. I watched as she searched for a home somewhere in the church outside of the Wesleyan family tree. I watched as she eventually came back to push again only to have her heart broken yet again by the church that she loved when General Conference 2019 passed legislation to be more punitive against LGBTQ plus individuals and their allies. I've watched as she has been a part of building something new, something liberating, something that is both Methodist and not. She has fought nonstop to find a space in the church where she will be safe and loved for who she is. But not everyone is willing to do that, nor should anyone have to. I know someone else who's non-binary who grew up in the church but doesn't really do church anymore. As I talked with them, one of the things that came up is that the church was just always sort of silent about what it means to be a queer Christian. There wasn't necessarily overt discrimination in their case, but sort of a don't ask, don't tell feeling to the whole institution. Instead, the church just wanted to talk about being kind or keeping the faith, whatever those things are supposed to mean when they're disembodied from people's lived experience. Now that they're open about their identity, there's uncertainty about what would happen if they go back. When our churches would rather not talk about the fullness of a person's humanity, it reveals how hollow and conditional our love can actually be. Is is Christian love really authentic if it expects people to keep secret parts of who they are? I have another friend who's now unchurched but went to a Catholic school growing up. As I talked with him one time, it became clear that it was the hypocrisy of it all that drove him away. He told me a story about how they were constantly told that they need to be pro-life, that abortion was sin, and that every child is precious to God from the moment of conception. But then, when a classmate got pregnant, the school kicked her out for being pregnant before marriage. He couldn't help but notice that that precious unborn child suddenly didn't seem so precious to these people who deemed themselves pro-life. It didn't escape him that by denying this girl a good education, the church had condemned her and her child to a more difficult life. Nor did it escape him that there was no room for grace or redemption in that girl's life. Next, 
I want to tell you about my cousin Sam. I'm sharing his name with you because when he shared some thoughts with me this week, he said, you can tell everyone who I am. They deserve to know me. And I think that that is an important part of Sam's story. There are some things that you need to know about my cousin to really understand his story. Sam is black, he is gay, and he is proud of who he is. He's also adopted into our very white family and grew up in northern Michigan. So it has been a journey for him to get to the place that he is today and to love himself as he does. He said that growing up in northern Michigan was hard because he never saw himself represented, especially not in the church and especially not with his sexual orientation. I give thanks and so does Sam for his parents who are strong in their own faith and helped to guide him in ways that the church failed to do so. Where the church never seemed to have space for Sam, his parents taught him that God is love and loves him for exactly who he is created to be. He also told me that when he went to college, was able to get some space away from the church and be around people from other ethnicities and cultures is when he found new meaning for lessons that his parents had taught him about a God who loves all people. And it was there, away from the church, that he found a stronger faith than he had ever had before. Sam did also share with me about some of the pains that he has felt in the last year. Pains that he and I have talked about before. He said, it's really hurtful to see so many Christians speaking up against Black Lives Matter, especially because those should be the people who are really pushing for this change and pushing for love and respect and light just as much as anyone else. He went on to elaborate that Christians with our history of persecution should understand firsthand what it's like to be disrespected or hurt for being different. But he also acknowledged that the church has a long history of hate and preaching by force toward any group of people that don't fit into the dominant cultural group. As I said, Sam is proud now of who he is, but that is in spite of how the church made him feel, not thanks to it. The church, because of his skin color and his sexual orientation, treated him like an other. It wasn't until he got space from the church that he could realize that he is special and deserves just as much love as anyone else. The reality is that I could spend all day telling you stories about why people in my generation and the generation behind me have left the church. I could even tell you about why I left the church for a few years. Being who I am, I've never been on the receiving end of the kind of injustice that my friends have felt, but every one 
of their stories breaks my heart. The truth is, I have more friends who either aren't Christian or who are Christian but not in the church than who are. And pretty much all of them have a good reason for that. But just to be clear, this isn't simply a generational divide. These kinds of stories have been happening for decades or millennia. There was a time that I was out to lunch with my family and I was wearing my shirt that references our baptismal vows by saying, resisting evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. Another group of folks sat down at the booth next to us and they saw my shirt and they said, hey, we protest on the corner out here every week if you want to join us. So I did. In the beginning, I was the only millennial in the group. And later on, when protests started happening nationwide, there were more young folks, including a number of kids from the high school, who showed up to lead their own protests across the street from our group. But for nearly a year, I stood on that street corner with them, speaking out against everything from looming threats of war to environmental destruction to the separation of families. And as I talked with these Gen Xers and baby boomers, it was sad, but not surprising, to hear how many of them had been raised in the church and had left because the church refused to speak out about injustice. They, too, had been taught about a God of love, but they never saw the church carry that love into the world. In this season of Lent, as we devote ourselves to practices that turn us back toward God, let us repent of the silence and inaction from our institutions. Let us confess of all the ways that we have failed to love our neighbors, of all the times that we have turned a blind eye to suffering and injustice. Let us remember that there is no authentic faith of love that can exist apart from an authentic faith of justice. Let us do these things so that we can leave behind our money changer mentalities and live true and faithful lives as the resurrected body of Christ for the world. Amen. Please pray with me. God, you are love and justice united together. Teach us how to worship you through words of compassion and acts of justice. Lead us to walk in your ways by setting aside the rituals and the institutions that stop us from seeing you in the faces of our neighbors. Amen.